Thanks for checking out the weekly Harmony Church podcast. For more information and resources about Harmony Church or any of the Harmony events, check out the Harmony Church website or Harmony Church Facebook page today. Well, God is so good. And um, <clears throat> I've just been, what's been stirring over my heart just sitting down there is, is to do with the love of God. And, and we shouldn't be too amazed that love is at the centre of everything. I think deep down in, in, our, in our human makeup, all of us have this something in, within our heart, the desire to love and be loved. And it's just part of who we are. If we strip everything away, that is at the root of everything, whether it's a positive or negative, it's at the root of everything. We shouldn't be surprised by that because we're created in the image of God. And it says in 1 John 4 verse 8 that God is love. <clears throat> It's written in a way that it's a, that it's a noun, not a verb. So it's not it's not an action he does. It's actually who he is, and it means that that God is one hundred percent love. He's not ten percent mercy, ten percent grace, ten percent wrath, ten percent love. He's one hundred percent love, which means that everything he does, every single activity he does, has to come from that um, that heart of love because that's who he is, and we're created in the same image as him. So therefore, that's why we have this um, compelling within us to actually love and be loved. It's, it's quite, quite, a, quite amazing. And we, when we think of the love of God, it's a word there called agape, and it's, um, <clears throat> it's really subscribing unsurpassable worth and value to another. So God's love towards you, he's, he's giving you value and worth, which is unsurpassable. It cannot be matched. And he does that completely unconditionally. Yeah, that should really settle a lot of things for us. It doesn't matter where you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter what the failures are in your life, the things you are challenged with. It does not change the love of God for you. In Romans 8, towards the end of chapter 36, he says, we cannot be separated from the love of God. Isn't that amazing? And if we look through Scripture, you know, there's so much through the New Testament concerning love. For You know, we know 1, 1 Corinthians 13, of course, where it says that, you know, faith, hope and love and the greatest is love. And the start of that, that um, chapter it talks about we can, we can do miracles, we can speak in tongues, we can you know, tell the mountains to be cast in the sea. If that is not done in love, it actually is of no value. That is massive. And through the epistles, we see time and time again we're encouraged to walk in love. It says in Colossians, above all, put on love. Love is the centre of everything. Yeah. And it's interesting in, in, the, in the Gospels when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees <clears throat> about the law. And um, he was asked, they had 613 laws. And, and Jesus said, I fulfilled the law. He said, I replace it with two laws. He said, there's two commandments, two laws. He said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul and all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. There's three, three directions there which are very important. One is love God, love your neighbour, and love yourself. Quite often we neglect the self part. But it's so important because when we know that we're loved, it's much easier for us to love. And we know the love of God for us and know that he, he ascribes to us value and worth which is unsurpassable with no conditions, well, then it's much easier for us to love others. It's interesting through the, um, the epistles after the, the Gospels, 
that whenever Paul or James, James 2, 8, and Paul and Romans, and again in Galatians, when they mentioned this command, they dropped out to love the Lord their God. They said, love your neighbour as yourself. Really, really interesting. And it really shows the heart of God. It really shows the love of God because if you go to 1 John 4, you see that to really love God, it says, and you might say you love God, but if you don't love the neighbour, you don't love God, basically. See, God, the heart of God is for us to love one another. And if we love one another, we're expressing our love to God. Okay, so... To, to demonstrate our love of God, I mean, God could have, um, you, know, you know, it's sort of natural for us, isn't it? When someone says, I love you, God says, I love you. It's natural for us to think straight back, I love God, isn't it? He loves me, I love God. God says, no, I love you. You demonstrate love to me by loving others. Quite amazing, isn't it? Also, there's so many things in Scripture tells us that, that this, the sign or the, the thing that the world needs to see is a love amongst the brethren, amongst the Christians. It's really quite, quite impactful. I want to look this morning at um, reconciliation, and I'm going to draw a bit of a comparison between how, how we share the gospel. Um, do we share it from motivation of love, or do we share it from another motivation? And I want to try and bring around a can to see that that the cross <clears throat> is the express image. It's a, it's a tangible image or expression of God's love to us. Right. Now, there's, it's not a. It's interesting that you know love can, in some ways, can be quite abstract if we try and find definitions of it. God gave us three clear definitions of love, and they all centered around Jesus. It's the incarnation. When God so loved us that the Creator became one of the created, I mean that—that that is love. When you're prepared to to put aside your divinity and put aside all you are because you love a race of people that were sinners that are rebelled against you, and He's prepared to come as a human being for us. The incarnation, Jesus did that. Jesus' life <clears throat> demonstrated the love of God. Everything Jesus did, he, he, he went around healing and doing good, or healing those who are oppressed of the devil. If you look at the life of Jesus you'll see that he demonstrated God's love by what he did. He was, he, was, he was very generous towards sinners. He hung out with sinners. He never condemned sinners. He actually forgave them. He, he contradicted often the, the laws of the time. And if you look at the laws he did, like, like eating on the Sabbath and healing some on the Sabbath, Jesus put his care and his love for the people above the law. Every, every situation, the reason he did that was to demonstrate the love was greater than the law. And then we see in, in um, oh, just so much of what he did. I'm going to get distracted if I go down there. But just let me say that if we look at Jesus, we understand who Jesus is and have a revelation of Jesus, we understand who God is. Yeah. And if you have any questions about the Bible, the Old Testament, look at Jesus. The Old Testament has to be interpreted in the light of the cross. And if we don't have the cross and the revelation of Jesus first, we come up with all sorts of strange ideas about what and who God is. So we're going to have a look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I think Matt's got it up there, and we'll start at verse 15. <clears throat> and um, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
For those of us in Christ, we're brand new creatures in Christ. And as Bev brought that word this morning, the old has gone. When that word new, it's not talking about a reupholstered person. It's talking about a brand new species of being. So in Jesus, we're a brand new species of being. If I just make a comment, if we go back to verse 14, I haven't got it there. But Paul is right in this because he said, love compels me. And you could always, we could say that as love energizes me, compels me. So Paul is writing this because love compels him to do so. He says, now all things that are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> Jesus reconciled us and he's given to you and I the ministry of reconciliation. Do you have any questions about what God wants you to do? Well, there it is, ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Not imputing their trespasses to him, he's committed that word to us, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent another kingdom, the kingdom of God. We, we, our allegiance is not in this world. Our allegiance is the kingdom of God. That means that no one can stop us. There's no legal right Nothing can stop us in the realm of the spirit for us sharing the ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> now I've lost my place. Where are we? Oh, now then, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he has made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most impactful passages of the scripture. You can, you can just really... It sums everything up in terms of the gospel for us, the good news of Jesus Christ. He did it for us. He reconciled us. And now the message now we take is telling people that they are already reconciled. It has been done. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. If we can have a look at Romans 5 or 8. There we are, Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So it was when we were in a state of alienation from God that he reconciled us. <clears throat> through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And now only that, but not only that, but also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want to talk a little bit about this reconciliation. Reconciliation is its a word that's used to describe um, two parties that have been astray or alienated and coming together again. I mean, we, we know that in the natural, don't we? If there's something happens in a relationship or in a business, there's differences, there's a, there's a void or a chism be, between the parties, we try and get them together and we try and reconcile what's going on. It's best seen as a, as a form of, um, it's really make, making things compatible again right. so that we can come together again. So God in Jesus, Jesus died on the cross to bridge that gaff, gap, to fill the void and make us compatible. We're 100% compatible with God now because of Jesus Christ. That's what reconciliation means. And we see right through the scripture, we say, see that reconciliation or the, the salvation that came, the, the, what Jesus did on the cross, um, 
was through the forgiveness of our sin. The gap between God and us was sin. And it's interesting to, re- to note that the reconciliation is, is, is us being reconciled to God, not God being reconciled to us. We were the ones that had the divide. We're the ones that had, this, had the sin problem. And God reconciled us to himself. And he chose to do that by shedding his blood on the cross. Jesus came and shed his blood. He was the, the, the lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And we see that right through the epistles of this, the way we become a Christian is by acknowledging those sins, acknowledging that gap, receiving the reconciliation. We do that by forgiveness, don't we? We come to God and we say, Father, forgive me. And we receive the forgiveness of God. I want to kind of contrast a bit um, how we present the gospel. And um, just, um, just bear with me because it might sound a little bit that I'm criticising something, but I'm not. But I was reading an article this week, actually. Um, it was to do with how we minister the gospel to Muslims. And um, it was interesting that in the, in the Muslim faith, the, the central thing they could not understand was why God the Father would actually brutalise and murder the Son. They, they couldn't understand that concept. They understand the concept of justice and holiness, but they couldn't understand the concept of why Jesus, who they consider a great prophet, they don't see him as the son of God, but they consider him a great prophet, why he had to suffer in order to appease a wrathful and angry God. And it, it, it was an interesting thing. It just, it just triggered off some things in me which have been dear to my heart, and, and it's to do with, with how we actually present the gospel message. I mean, the... One of the most common ways of presenting the gospel message is that God is holy and just. There's a problem of sin. So God, to deal with the sin, he loves us so much, so he sent his son, he came himself, to die on the cross to take the judgment and the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself. Right? That would be, that in some cases, the standard gospel message. <clears throat> and it's been the main one in evangelical circles for years, and in America, the famous evangelist Jonathan Edwards, he used to preach a sermon, um, <clears throat> Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You've probably heard of that. Which the idea was that God has everything in his hand, he's holding people there, and he's basically saying, repent or I'm going to drop you into hell. It's your choice. So sinners in the hands of an angry God. I want to look at what, how we present the gospel message from three, four different perspectives. We're going to look at forgiveness, judgment, wrath, and then love. And um, I want to look at this area of forgiveness <clears throat> because it's a forgiveness of God that brings us into that place of reconciliation. Yeah. All right? So what is forgiveness? <clears throat> There's um, two words used in the Bible, um, or two words from the Greek translated to English. Excuse me. <clears throat> and one of them comes from the, the root word of grace. And, um, and it's ch- charis, charismar, I think it's called. And it gives a thought there that the forgiveness of God is totally unconditional. There's, there's nothing required. There's, there's no penalty or payment or justice that has to happen first. 
<clears throat> the second word is, is similar to that. It's, it's got the same, it's a different word in the Greek, but it's got the same meaning. It actually means to be released, or it's one that's often translated remission, where our sins have been remitted. And it's got the same thought, but it's, it adds a little extra in, the, in that we've been forgiven by God's grace or his unmerited favour, but it requires of us to actually reach out and receive and bring it into our, our life. In other words, it's, it's there, but, it, but there's a response has to come from us. The forgiveness of God is not conditional upon Jesus dying on the cross in one sense. Now, just listen to what I'm saying, because he forgave us before the foundation of the world. You know that scripture? From God's perspective, he forgave us right back in the beginning. Why could he do that? Because he loves us, because that's what love is like. But the cross was a point where the the issue of sin through forgiveness was dealt with. It's interesting that when Jesus stood up in the synagogue, when he announced his ministry in Luke 4, he, he, he read from Isaiah and he said, I've come to set the captives free and to bring liberty. And then he goes on and he actually neglects the bottom part, which is Isaiah, which is the day of the vengeance of the Lord. He rejects the judgment part. He says he's come to set us, set us free from the captives to make us liberated. So the forgiveness we receive from God when we, when we confess our sins is actually, it's already in the heart of God. He's already forgiven us. What we're doing, we're actually acknowledging that we've been in captivity to sin and we're recognising that the sin problem was dealt with on the cross through Jesus Christ. There was no appeasement of God required. God, God does not, did not require a payment for our forgiveness. One of the best examples of this is in, in the story of the prodigal son. Um, <clears throat> if you think of the, the story that Jesus told, he clearly paralleled the father as God and the two boys, right? One boy wanted to um, get his inheritance. <clears throat> so he, he got that from the father. He went away and he spent it on riotous living, sin, all sorts of stuff, which was wrong. At some point, it says that he, he found himself in the, in the pig garden. And it says he came to his senses. And he thought, well, I'll be better off as a servant in my father's house than here. And he, he started to go home. Now, interesting. Sorry, I'm going to lose it. i got too far. <laughs> interesting. The father, the father's heart must have always been towards the boy, always looking for him. His love never, ever wavered. Because when he came from a distance, his father saw him. It shows the heart of God. He, he, he never is separated from it. He's always looking for us. He's looking for us to come home. And the interesting thing, when the boy did come home, as soon as the father saw him, he lifted up his robes and he started to run, which was, you know, there's a whole story in there which I haven't got time to go to. But he ran to the boy. Now, the boy didn't have any chance to say sorry. He didn't grovel and repentance. The father wouldn't allow him. father just engulfed him, put the robe upon him, got the ring, restored him back in, said, where's the fatted calf? We're going to have a party. The father never, ever mentioned anything about, I've got to judge you for your sin. Your sin 
it's got to be paid for. I've got to do, I mean, I've got to, maybe your older brother will step in and I can, he can pay for you. He didn't say that at all. It was total, complete forgiveness, unconditionally, no strings attached because of love. <clears throat> you see, we, we have this view sometimes, as I've mentioned before, the, the, the salvation story, how we might, some people might present the gospel. If God is a, a judgmental, wrathful God <clears throat> that requires a penalty and a payment. And I want to suggest that's not the gospel. The gospel is about love. Now, there are some, some verses which we have to grapple with in that. It's clear that, that wrath comes up <clears throat> right through Scripture. And we read that, and I think that's one up there, isn't it? It talks about the wrath of God. What is wrath? <clears throat> the wrath, it, it, it's just it's an anger. It's, it's where um, you are so, uh, there's a word I can't quite think of at the moment, but it is an anger, but it's not an anger like we would have. It's not a human anger. It's, it's where God is, is in, indignant. He's passionately indignant about what is happening. You'll notice that wrath and judgment, that matter, in, the, in nearly every context of sin in Scripture, is to do with disobedience and sin. So when God's wrath is talked about in Scripture, it's talking about his, his anger towards sin. Now, it's motivated because of love. Because you said before, God is loving and it comes from love. He's not angry towards the sinner. He's angry towards the sin. He's angry at the sin because of what the sin is doing to the person he loves. It's, and it's, 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 it's a bit like the easiest way for me to understand it is often it's, it's like a disease. If, if we know someone that's, say, battling cancer, we know cancer is killing, destroying, and bringing death to the physical body, Right? So we, we pray against that cancer in the name of Jesus, lay hands, etc. Then some people, some of you would have experienced this. Sometimes there's something rises up in us where we just get a real anger towards cancer. And we say, cancer, go in the name of Jesus. That's the wrath of God. That's what, that's what the wrath of God is. It's when you see something that's killing, stealing, and destroying, and you rise up against it, and you don't want it to go. You get, now, why do you want it to go? Because you love the person who's battling the disease. That's what the wrath of God is. So the wrath of God is, is not him just indiscriminately thinking you're a bad person. Not like that at all. The same with judgment. Judgment is linked. In fact, you see wrath and judgment linked together quite a lot in the New Testament. Um, the judgment of God is, 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 the word judgment just means making a decision. That's all it is. It's God making a decision. It's shining truth into the circumstances that are there. It's like a, like a forensic scientist in some ways. God, he, he can only be judged because he's the only one that knows everything. And it's very clear and he's a judge, we aren't. He judges everything. It's when things come before him, like the great day of judgment, he'll be looking at the circumstances of a person's life. The light of truth will shine in and all God will do is actually let the cards fall where they are. That's his judgment. He makes a decision on what's there. If you've aligned yourself with sin and death... Unfortunately, that is where you go. If you've, if you've been covered in the, in the robe of righteousness, you're fine. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not punishment. In fact, it's one of the, the, the things that we, we mix up a lot because judgment and wrath, when God does judge or wrath is there, often it's associated with sin 
and disobedience. And there's nearly always a consequence of that that follows. So we tend to, to associate judgment and wrath with punishment. It does not mean that at all. The punishment is not from the hand of God. When God hands someone over, like when the facts are there, he makes a judgment and he, he's handing them over to their sin. The wages of sin is death. God's not bringing the death. Sin's bringing the death. You know, if he hands it over to Satan, Satan's the one that kills, steals, and destroys. Not God. He brings life. So for us to present a gospel message that God is going to get you unless you repent is not the true message. The true message is one of love. And it says in, in John 1, 3, verse 16, I think Matt might have that up there for us. It says, the outworking of love. Okay, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we were also to lay down our lives for brethren. By this we know love. We know love because he laid down his life for us. The cross is the greatest demonstration of the love of God that we could we could ever say, perceive, or imagine. It was where God so loved you and I that he chose to enter right into who we are, into our mess, to take on our mess to the point of dying in our place on the cross. That is the love of God. And that's the message that we are to share, that God so loved you, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in all shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel is about the love of God. That God loved us so much. What happened on the on the cross? We see. If we maybe we've got another verse up there. We've got Colossians. There we go. <clears throat> and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made. Alive to get where I made light again with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The cross is about God loving us so much that he would actually enter right in right into the air of sin, and he would conquer sin and evil on our behalf on the cross. Contrary to thinking that God's judgment is upon us, it's the exact opposite. God took the judgment on Jesus, or Jesus took the judgment deserving deserving to us. How do you do that? He did that by opening himself up and allowing the consequence of our sin to come upon him. And in doing that, he exposed himself to the devil and demons. The devil, he comes to kill, steal and destroy. And he did that because of love. And the only evidence of the judgment of God on the cross is when Jesus cried out, "My, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that was a, the first time in Jesus' history, remember he was divine, but he was also human, it was the first time in Jesus' history that the Father, in a sense, turned his back because of sin. He was never separated from God because it says that God was in Christ on the cross. But in, in Jesus' humanity, the full weight of sin 
came upon him. Every, every conceivable sin, disease, sickness that you can imagine, he voluntarily took upon himself on the cross. <clears throat> and he exposed himself to the principalities and powers. And that's why it says up here that he's having, he wiped the, the, the handwriting's requirements against the requirements of the law. He wiped it out completely. And he nailed everything to the cross. Everything was nailed to the cross because he loved us. It was about his love. <clears throat> and we see, here we go, time. I've got about two minutes. I'll wrap it up. But the cross is, is I mean, I, I like to think of it as, as the greatest thing that's ever happened because, because we can see right through Scripture that, that, that Satan and principalities and powers of darkness, they knew who Jesus was. The times that they said, why are you here, son of God? They knew who he was, but they could never understand why he, why he was there. Um, in fact, one time they said, you know, our time is not up yet. You know, what, they didn't understand why Jesus was there. Now, nor did the disciples. <clears throat> and I believe God waited 4,000 years to, for Jesus to come for a lot of reasons. But partly it was because of the, the environment of the time, the, the Jewish culture. They were waiting for a Messiah. They, they, they thought a Messiah was going to come. And in their mind, they saw the Messiah being, or the prophecy of Messiah being fulfilled as a literal, physical reign and ruling kingdom right there. They thought that the Messiah was going to come and actually deal with the Romans, deal with the oppression, re-establish Jerusalem, and, and the Jewish nation would then be restored back to its glory. <clears throat> so you have this background. You have the, the Jewish people thinking that way. You have, even the disciples thought that because the disciples didn't understand it. When, the, when Jesus died on the cross, they went fishing. They, didn't, they, they really didn't understand it. That's the genius of God. That's the genius of God, that he could work a system Knowing the free will of man and the free will of angels, he, he can't manipulate, he can't control things because that goes, that violates love. But he knew what they would be thinking, how they're responding, what they'd be doing. As Jesus came into that environment, <clears throat> they couldn't understand what was going on. Jesus went to the cross and Satan knew, one thing he knew, that Jesus was killable because he'd come, because God had come in the flesh. He knew he was killable. And he thought, well, rather than him reestablishing his physical kingdom here on earth, like they all believe and thought, if I kill him, that settles it. So Jesus came voluntarily. Satan worked through Judas. When Satan entered Judas, as the kingdom of darkness was there on the, on, right around the cross and the crucifixion, they killed Jesus. But they didn't know that love can't be defeated. The one thing Satan didn't understand, they couldn't understand because he's, he's evil. The thing you could not understand and the thing they could not understand is that love triumphs over death always. Yeah. So it was the love of God on the cross that defeated Satan in a strange sort of way defeating Satan, de Satan defeated himself. Because it says in Scripture, had he known, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, that's an amazing love story, isn't it? Where, where God would set something up in such a way that love would triumph over sin, sickness, disease, disease, anything negative. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, um, be encouraged. Be encouraged to share the love of God. When you have people across, come across your path where um, they don't know Jesus, just be encouraged to share the love. Say, well, God so loved you. God is not a God up there wanting to somehow exercise some violence upon you or, or have you been punished or, or paid 
for your crime. No, he loves you. Loves you. Thank God. If, if there's anyone here this morning, if you have heard what I've said and you don't actually know or haven't come to an understanding of who Jesus is and if he actually loves you and he's paid the price for you, I just encourage you to open, open your heart. And um, there is actually nothing, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is one thing, but there's nothing from God's perspective. The only thing is whether you will receive it or not. It's your choice. There's no conditions. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how good you've been. There's actually nothing. It's just simply saying, yes, I understand God's love for me, that he loved me so much that he came and died for me. And just saying, yes, Father, I receive what you've done on the cross for me. If there's anyone like that today, if, if you... If that's sort of tugging on your heart, I'd encourage you to come up front and there'll be some people here and we'll pray with you. Also, I believe that there's some... I just get a sense... I'll hand over to Jared a minute, but I'll just, get, I'll just say one thing. I just get a sense that some, some people have been, have been struggling with... Um, it's like a weight of responsibility on you. It could be in your work, it could be in any area, but it's like you... You're struggling with a weight of responsibility. And at, at the root of it is that you sort of feel that if, if you don't do what's required to do, that the blessing of God will not be upon you. And I just want to, want to say that the blessing of God is upon you for one reason and one reason only, because he loves you. Nothing can stop the blessing of God upon your life if you understand love. There's a lot of principles we know and sense of, of practical application. That, but from God's perspective, nothing can stop his blessing towards you in whatever area you are believing God for because he loves you. There's no hindrance. All the hindrance have been nailed to the cross. So if you're struggling with that this morning, there's just, just you've been feeling the weight of it, and, and I suspect that it's, the weight is because you don't want to disappoint God. In other words, you somehow you've linked what you do with, with God's blessing upon you. Now, we're not to... In 1 John chapter 4, and there's a chapter I love, it's, it talks there, one verse. It's, it's, I'm just trying to think how, how it's framed. But it's basically saying that we don't live for God. We actually live through God. We can easily slip in to this thing of think we've got to, we're living for God. In other words, we've got to do things. We've got to do this. God requires this. We actually live through God, which means that we're one. Everything's been done one hundred percent for us, but we're also one hundred percent dependent upon Him. It's actually the best place of humility because because saying everything is mine because of Jesus. Sound you could almost make that a prideful statement. I am, but the only way into that is by realizing that the only way that's worked is you're one hundred percent committed and surrendered to Him. So it comes by surrender, not by doing. Where to be, not to do. But thank you. I'll hand it over to Jared.